Are you a Christian who wants to go deeper into the roots of your faith? Well, you've come to the right place. Welcome to Grafted, Jewish Roots of Christianity. This is a podcast for Christians who want to understand the Jewishness of Jesus and his word. I'm your host, Stephanie Pavlantos. I'm a bit of a Bible nerd. I'm also an author and a Bible teacher. In this podcast, we will stretch and maybe even challenge you to look at Scripture from a Hebraic point of view. We want to help you understand Scripture through the lens of the Hebrew language, culture, and history. Thank you for joining us. Our guest is Aaron Imey. Aaron is joining us from Jerusalem. He is a deacon and the director of research and education at Christ Church. And thank you for being here today. We are excited to hear what you're going to tell my listeners and just teach us. More than welcome. Let's begin, I guess, by saying that most of us really like reading the Bible. I mean, out of all the books sitting on our bookshelves, of which there's probably many, the one that we gravitate to often during the year is the Bible, whether we read it in a deliberate fashion or whether we read it only sort of once or twice a week or whether we read it only when someone asks us a question or we we search the knowledge. We reach for this text and this book comes to us from a moment in history, from a a people in time, and uh, it's far removed from our current culture. And yet these words have had incredible influence all over the world. And uh, and that creates us to start having a relationship with our, our Heavenly Father. And so part of my job is to, to describe the Jewish roots of the Christian faith or the Hebraic perspective, that is reading the Bible in its context, trying to ascertain and understand what do the disciples of Jesus hear when he says words? What do they see? What do they actually understand when they see him do things in his Jewish context? And how does that make me a better disciple? Uh, And that's ultimately the pursuit, the pursuit of Hebraic roots, the pursuit of the Jewish roots of the Christian faith is to be a better disciple of Jesus, the Messiah. You went to the Hebrew University, and and I just want to point out that you have an Australian accent, so you're not this Jewish rabbi that we think of when we think of Israel. So you're originally from Australia, so I just want to throw that out there. And do you consider yourself a missionary? Do I consider myself a missionary? Oh, that's a good word. So yes, in the on both sides of the table. I have lots of Jewish friends. I study with rabbis twice a week. Um, I'm constantly engaging in the in the Jewish Christian dialogue and debate. Uh, some segments of the Jewish community will yell at me and say, "You're a missionary because you talk about Jesus." Every Christian, hopefully, is going to say that that they've been talking about. That's Jesus. right. Of course, on the, the other side of the table, which is um, the household of faith, so to speak, then uh, we're called to follow and do the same things that our Master does. So, technically, yes. How's that? Right. We are all. So, your master's degree is in early Jewish and Christian interpretation of the Bible. So can you explain that a little bit? Yes. So uh, I originally came to Israel oh, 24 years ago. How does that sound? I didn't hear the voice of heaven say, Aaron, get thee to Jerusalem. I drove to Israel uh, from London uh, back in 1998. You could do such a thing. And uh, when I came to Israel, 
I fell in love with the place. I fell in love with the people. I discovered a community where Arabs who believe in Jesus, Jews who believe in Jesus, and Gentiles who believe in Jesus worship together, pray together, marry each other. That was quite attractive. And uh, to understand a little bit more about my own personal faith uh, and how this all plays out, the things I'm seeing in front of me, um, I went to Hebrew University and I studied a master's degree. And I studied how early Jews and Christians read and interpreted the Bible. That is how Jews and Christians interpreted the Bible between the years 300 and 300. So 300 years before Jesus, 300 years after Jesus, when essentially there isn't a Bible as we know it. So, you know, we pick these books up from our um, bookshops and our, and our bookshelves and we, and on front of the cover, it says the Holy Bible. You know, wow. Goodness, this is fantastic. But at the time of Jesus, there was no such thing. And hundreds of years after Jesus, there's no such thing. So what are they reading? How are they interpreting it? Where are they coming up with all of this beautiful stuff that we, we sort of kind of treasure today? So that was, that was the realm I, 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 I studied. Okay, great. Thank you. And, and you are a Bible teacher. And like you said earlier, you explored the Hebrew roots of our Christian faith. And and that's really the main thing that this whole podcast is about. And I want you to explain some of the things. And, and I've heard you talk um, multiple times. I've seen some of your videos and, and such. And the church I went to actually um, supported you and had you into our, our church at times. So um, while we don't know each other personally, I have seen and heard you speak. And I'm always impressed with when you start talking about the Hebraic roots, you make a point of saying this is not about our salvation. Um, reading the Bible is not about salvation. We only have salvation through the Messiah, through Jesus, the Messiah. But there's a reason, like you introduced when we first started talking, you talked about there's a reason we study our Bibles. And and there's a reason that these Jewish roots help us study our Bibles and help us understand more about Jesus. So if you want to take it from there, talk to us about that. Uh, I, I, I sometimes, unfortunately, no, I won't say unfortunately. Sometimes I challenge people and that's a good thing. It's a good thing to be challenged. Uh, it's a good thing to be able to sit back and contemplate. Wow, do I really think this way or perhaps I actually think or want to think uh, in another way. I often will, will, will start a Bible study by saying, let's remember that our faith is not in our Bible. Like, oh my gosh, what are you talking about? It's the word of God. Yes, it's the word of God, absolutely. But it is not God. And the, the early disciples didn't have a Bible, but my gosh, did they believe in God. My gosh, did they believe and know who the Messiah was and they understood the kingdom of heaven. They relished and reveled and lived in the spirit, but they didn't have a Bible as we know it. And they didn't believe the Bible. They believed in Jesus. And, and we need to remember that our faith is in the risen Messiah. The gospel can be summed up in one word. Messiah rose from the dead. If he didn't rise from the dead, forget it. Throw your book away. Go, go do something else. But if Messiah did rise from the dead and he did, then nothing else matters. And, and so now that we have this beautiful relationship with our heavenly father, because the Messiah rose from the dead and uh, we are introduced to this incredible creator, sustainer, redeemer, friend, king, and all of these other concepts, it, it, it usually behooves us to want to get to know 
the people we're in a relationship better. When I'm in a relationship with my wife, obviously I want to get to know who she is. I want to get to know my kids. I want to get to know my friends. How do you do that? Spend time with them, talk to them, listen to them, understand who they are. How do I get to know who God is? Well, the way I can do it is I can read his word. He's given me this incredible treasure. Excellent. So now I get to read the word and God reveals himself. He tells me the things that he likes. He tells me the things that he doesn't like. He tells me what he's done in the past. He tells me what he's going to do in the future. And he tells me what he's doing right now. It's like, wow, this is absolutely fantastic. I'm getting to know my heavenly father better. I'm getting to have a better relationship with, uh, with my God. And he's having a better relationship with me. Now, what the Hebraic roots or the Jewish roots of the Christian faith does is it takes this word, the Bible, and it puts it in its historical context. And uh, we start to see or hear and understand what do the disciples hear when Jesus speaks? What do what do Jewish people understand by the kingdom of heaven when Jesus says the kingdom of heaven's like this, the kingdom of heaven's like that? And uh, so, what Jewish roots does is it deepens my relationship with my heavenly Father, and I get to know Him in a more intimate, uh, personal way. While this does not affect my faith, it certainly certainly adds to it doesn't detract from it uh, at all so i recommend the hebraic perspective for all followers of jesus the messiah i agree thank you and one of the things i learned i mean probably ever since i became a christian i learned things like the garden of eden is somewhere in iran or iraq and you know and of course how the bible talks about it it's it's nowhere. It's not there now. It's It's been covered. It's been destroyed. It's been, it's missing. We can't see it. Something like that. And, but you have a different view and you have convinced me of your view, but I'd like you to explain that a little bit. Okay, sure. Uh, well, first of all, one of the Hebraic principles is that the beginnings and ends always occur in the same place. They always occur in the same pattern, the same way, often with the same names. You know, all these kinds of things reappear constantly in, a, in an incredible cyclical pattern. God loves pattern. So where's the Garden of Eden? Well, in Jewish tradition, the Garden of Eden is actually right in the middle of Jerusalem. It's the Temple Mountain. And sitting in the middle of the garden was the Tree of Life. Now, the book of Genesis describes that coming out of the tree of the, out of the garden are these four rivers and it names them and uh, we know you know where these rivers are today one in egypt there's two in iraq sort of all the way from turkey iraq and parts of iran the tigris and the euphrates there's another one called the gihon which is uh, here in, in israel now what makes uh, these four rivers slightly different is three of them are not based on springs that is their water sources change over time, which means they change over time. So they do not stay the same flow. Like, for example, the exit of the Jordan River is different today than it was in Jesus' day. Like if you went to the Galilee and you went to where the Jordan River exits the Galilee, that is not the same place where Jesus was because the silted up previously. It happens over time. That's what happened. Uh, so the Tigris, the Euphrates, and the Prat, which are described in the, in the in the book of Genesis, they're based on mountain sources. So their trib- origins have changed since the flood. Whereas a spring, which means there's something that's a, a hole in the earth and it bubbles up from the center of the earth, that doesn't change. And the Gihon that's mentioned in the, in the book of uh, Genesis is still here in Israel. 
And it's the only spring that you have at the base of the mountain of, uh, of Mount Zion or the Temple Mountain. In the middle of the Temple Mountain or the middle of the Garden of Eden was a, a tree, a tree of life. Adam, who was fashioned not in the garden, he was fashioned somewhere and then moved to the garden. He eventually, unfortunately, doesn't do his job correctly and, and leaves the garden. We end up with human history and uh, what we call the fall. And in the book of Revelation, when heaven and earth reconnect, when Jerusalem of above descends on Jerusalem below and they push themselves together, then in the middle of Jerusalem is the tree of life. They're right in exactly the same place, right on top of the, of the other. And this is a, a very, very, very Jewish theme that beginnings and ends always occur in the same place. So much so that um, speaking of Adam, when he left the garden, he does a whole bunch of things. He even builds a city conveniently called Adam, uh, which is not actually in our Bibles. It's in the Armenian Bible. It's in a book called The Life of Adam and Eve. Um, he builds a city and he calls it after himself called Adam. And uh, when our Bible, that is the Bible we're all reading uh, in, in the Protestant and Catholic world, when uh, the children of Israel cross into the Jordan, into Canaan, the Jordan River stops. The rivers the, literally stop at a place called Adam. How does the book of Genesis know such a thing? Okay, this tradition that, that uh, there was this place. And in fact, today in Israel, we actually have a bridge that connects Jordan and Israel together in that location called the Adam Bridge. Why they called it that? Uh, it's probably because the ruins nearby were actually the ancient city of Adam. Adam eventually dies. And when he dies, the tradition was that you were buried where you were made. You were buried back, you know, you go back to your, your ancestral home. So Michael, the archangel, buries Adam, and he buries him in exactly the same place where he was created, which is here in Jerusalem. And it was identified for us as the place of the skull, Golgotha, Adam's skull, and uh, which is preserved for us in Greek Orthodox art. All Orthodox art of Jesus on a cross all have him sitting above a skull and crossbones, and that's Adam's skull. So first man Adam dies and he's buried. And last man, Adam, is crucified in exactly the same place. Death enters the world through this guy, and death is removed from the world in exactly the same spot. Very, very Jewish, preserved by a what we would call a Christian text. You couldn't just make this stuff up. It's, it's just all there. Wow, that is so interesting. And I think that it really helps us understand so much more of that. You know how you talked about um, God is not on a linear timeline. Everything comes back around to where it started. And I think that's really one of those facts that are lost on us as, as believers um, in the Christian church, in the Gentile church. And because I would imagine that that's more of a, a Hebrew kind of tradition and understanding that these things happen way and we can see it when you start putting things together even when you look at the the giving of the law on mount zion and the giving of the holy spirit in acts you see so many parallels there and people don't realize that what we call pentecost the first pentecost happened back here on mount sinai absolutely and it happened in exactly the same way on exactly the same day is that uh, when God came down on Mount Sinai to give his Torah, well, the actual text in Exodus, it says that the children of Israel saw lightning, they saw thunder, and they saw voices. You know, how can you see voices? I mean, voices is something you hear. Uh, it also says they saw fire. 
And it actually says the word lepidim. They saw torches, which is literal. But uh, they saw they saw torches of fire and voices. That's what the actual text in Exodus says. So the exegesis, the Jewish exegesis of that, like trying to figure out what exactly did Israel see, is uh, they will uh, they will say that when when God speaks, fire comes out of His mouth because the the voice is fire. You can see it, and uh, and as the fire left the Lord's mouth, it split into 70 fires now where do they get the number 70 from you know did they pull this out of the hat no they looked through the book of genesis and they discovered that in genesis 10 god had divided up the world in 70 nations there's the table of nations in genesis 10 and so they they sort of make this link to say that when god speaks he speaks to all of his creation he doesn't just speak to Jews; he speaks to everybody and and one of the things we need to remind ourselves and and become familiar with in the in the hebrew bible is that salvation is universal whenever you talk about whenever you look at the word salvation in the psalms it's always in conjunction with the nations it's never kept privately to jews the only people on the planet jews are getting saved that's that's not in, in the in the hebrew bible at all it's always hallelujah adonai kologoim praise the lord all you nations well why would the nations praise the lord if they're not going to get saved you know why are all the nations coming to jerusalem on sukkot why are all nations coming up to zion to worship the lord it's because god has always wanted jews and gentiles together and in fact that's exactly what you see in the exodus god takes his people out of egypt but they're not the only ones coming it's egyptians too and they and so sitting at mount sinai are jews and gentiles that's it's always been together and uh, so when God speaks, he speaks to his entire creation. And so at, at Mount Sinai, you've got tongues of fire, you've got all the nations of the world, you've got the giving of the Torah. And then in Acts chapter 2, on exactly the same day, Shavuot or Pentecost, you end up with exactly the same formula. Thunder and lightning, everyone's gathered in one place. Uh, you've got all the nations of the world represented. That's what Acts chapter 2 says. And then you've got tongues of fire. And and this this sort of... It's exactly the same. It's it's basically Mount Sinai 2.0, where we're doing it again, and we're doing it in a new and and a very ref- refreshed way. So they link together the the law, the Torah, which is actually the word for instruction. Law is a very very poor translation of the word Torah. The instructions, the guidance, and the teaching of God and the Holy Spirit come always track together. Faith without works, as James would say, is dead. They, they run together. Yes, that's so cool. And, and you're right. As far as the Torah, it's the Greek that translates it into law. And so as Christians, we start looking at it as a very bad thing, as a very legalistic thing. It's really not. It's the instruction or the teaching. It's God's teaching to all of us, not just the Hebrew people, not just the Jewish people. It's everyone. Absolutely. And I think that we get that wrong in that respect because we look at it as a such a legalistic thing and it doesn't necessarily apply to us as Christians. Right. That, which is very, very incredible that you would say that something that came from the mouth of God doesn't apply to you. That, that's, uh, that's unbelievable that, that people would say such a thing, but people do. And they do it all over the world. And uh, it's really uh, disingenuous to God himself that, oh, God's only speaking to somebody else. And, you know, I really have to pay attention. That's that's never actually the case. You don't see that. Paul never says such a thing. The apostles never, never described such a thing. And none of the early church fathers said such a thing either. They all treasured the Hebrew Bible. 
because they said this actually proves who the Messiah is. It, when, when I'm challenged, and I'm challenged quite a bit when I talk to some of my fellow believers, how can we possibly keep the Torah? I said, well, same way Abraham did. And they'll be like, what are you talking about? And you go, well, I, I better bring my proof text. When, whenever you have a discussion with Jewish people, you'd be, you better be able to back yourself up with the, with the scriptures. It actually says in Genesis 26, verse 5, Abraham has departed. He has now gone on into the world to come uh, of blessed memory. God is talking to Isaac. There's not many much dialogue between God and Isaac in the Bible. It's a character who doesn't get a lot of airtime. He gets his little mountaintop experience and then not, not so much else. We really want to jump over and get into Jacob and Joseph. But but God says to Isaac, your father Abraham kept all of my Torah. It actually says it in, in plural. You go, what? How is that possible? Humans can't do such a thing. You know, this is not, not possible. Well, if God says it, it's true. And so we need to have the humility to turn around and go, what does God mean by that? That Abraham, who's fundamentally flawed like the rest of us, whom we see make all kinds of mistakes in the Bible too. He lies to various kings about who his wife is. And God says, oh yeah, no, this man, this man kept all my Torahs. King David, I, a man after my own heart, says the Lord. Oh, you mean the murderer and the adulterer and the, the, that guy? Yeah, I mean him. Yeah, the, the Lord tends to identify in our weaknesses, which is great. You know, in, in our weakness, he is strong. But uh, we shouldn't run away from the instructions of the Lord. Actually, try and learn from them and, uh, and put them into practice it really would help. Jesus himself says, blessed is he who hears my words and does them. One of our favorite phrases here in Jerusalem is read the Bible, do the Bible. Uh, you'll, be, you'll be fine. That's good. That's great. We really do need to do the Bible more. And moving on to some questions I had about the New Testament. So I was brought up from just about every church I've ever been to, including now in uh, this time of my life, where whenever a discussion about the book of Luke or the book of Acts comes up, Luke is always described in the same way. He is a Greek doctor. He writes about what he has heard, about what maybe even other, I think I've even heard where Mary, the mother of Jesus, told Luke all these stories and that kind of thing. And even Theophilus, who he names in the very first sentence of his book, is basically a generic name for God lover. It's it's to everyone who loves God. So how can you explain that to us? Okay, well, I, I know that tradition because I also grew up with that, that stuff too. Um, it's actually not true at all. There's almost no bit of it. Um, so first of all, Luke, uh, in between his gospel and acts, he actually writes more of the Bible than Paul does. All of Paul combined together doesn't come up to the number of words that our dear brother Luke produces. And uh, the tradition is that he's a Gentile. You know, you know, us Gentiles, we kind of want, want at least one guy to write the Bible and that it's a Gentile. You kind of have the Jews have to do everything. But we as Protestants, we have a tendency to only dialogue with Catholics. Usually the dialogue goes something like this. You're wrong. And they say, no, 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 you're wrong. And then we're all having a fantastic debate. But we as Protestants have a tendency not to dialogue with the other 400 million believers out there, the Orthodox. And the Orthodox, be they the Russians, the Greeks, the Ukrainians, the Egyptians, the Ethiopians, you know, the Chaldeans, you know, the Armenians, you name it, Syrians. You name another group, there's a, there's a lot of Orthodox out there. They hold to a, a tradition because they never left Israel. Right? You're looking at the Orthodox who are actually holding on to a lot more Jewish traditions than they 
would probably even care to admit. And we in the West, you know, we're quite removed in time and distance, kind of forgot a lot of our Jewish roots. But the Orthodox, they actually preserved more than they probably wanted to. And they'll tell you that Luke is a Jewish guy from Antioch. And he came to Jerusalem just like Paul did. He's a Hellenized Jew. He knows how to speak Greek. He knows how to speak Hebrew. He knows how to speak Aramaic. And he comes and he studies the Bible. And so he knows a lot. And he actually joins the Jesus movement. And so he's not one of the inner 12, but he's around. And this explains why there's so much unique material in Luke. So like in Luke, his gospel, he has Luke has 10 chapters of Jesus journeying to Jerusalem to face the crucifixion. So from Luke 9 to Luke 19, 10 chapters. And within that 10 chapters, which is a journey of Jesus setting his face towards Jerusalem, there is lots of unique material. How did he have access to that? Probably because he was here. He's also the only gospel that actually identifies the Sea of Galilee as a limne, which means a sweet water lake. The other gospels actually describe it as a thalassa, which means brackish water, which it's not. So Luke always gets his geography right. He always gets his water sources right. And he seems to have access to Mary like nobody else. So probably the Greeks actually have it correct. Jewish guy. I mean, who had never heard of a Jewish doctor? Anyone not heard of a Jewish doctor? I mean, that's every every mother wants their Jewish son to be a doctor. So he's got a good characteristic there. So most likely he has very good access to eyewitness material. And so his gospel is, is quite quite poignant and direct. And it's actually directed to a certain person. Who's this certain person? Theophilus. It's the only gospel directed to a person. The only person we know with that name in human history at that time is Theophilus ben Ananus. Theophilus ben Ananus was the high priest of the temple in Jerusalem between the years 37 to 41. And so uh, Luke is most likely writing his initial gospel to the high priest, which is the reason why it calls him his excellency. Doesn't call it that in Acts because most likely he stepped down from the position and no longer gets that title. And the first encounter that you have of Jesus in the gospel of Luke is in the temple. Mary goes into the temple and he brings Jesus into the temple and he meets Anna and Simeon. And the last word of the gospel of Luke is the word, the temple. They come down to the Mount of Olives and they go into the temple and they worship. And basically the, the gospel of Luke is a very, very temple focused gospel. Jesus fights the Sadducees. He challenges temple leadership. He has discussions and critiques of, the, of temple theology. And, and so a lot of his things are based around the temple, beginning and end, and, uh, and it's directed to the temple. So most likely, to everybody who's listening, in Jerusalem, we have a tendency to believe that actually Luke was the first gospel, not Mark, not Matthew, actually it was Luke. He's an eyewitness. He's a Jewish boy probably one of the 70 disciples, just like the Orthodox think. Uh, he writes his gospel deliberately to the high priest, and, and he has a very strong temple focus. Why do you think he wrote it to the high priest? Why was the high priest so interested? That's a good question, and that's because the Pentecost occurs at the temple. Uh, we read in the book of Acts that they were in the house, and just about every commentary down the bottom will say, this is the upper room. No, not at all. Pentecost, Shavuot, that's one of the pilgrim festivals, one of the three big pilgrim festivals. Any Jewish man is supposed to appear before the Lord in the temple. So what are all these disciples of Jesus doing sitting in a room? If you said the word house in Hebrew, habayt, you would mean only, you would, that would only mean one place, the temple. 
In fact, the, the Temple Mountain in Hebrew is called Har Habait, Mountain of the House. So it's the uh, disciples of Jesus are gathering in the temple. The Holy Spirit falls, and just like it did on, uh, on uh, Mount Sinai. Now it occurs at Mount Zion, and a lot of people become believers. And by the time you get to Acts 15, James and Peter are having a discussion. James tells Peter, do you see how many priests are believers of Jesus and they are zealous for the Torah? So the high priest is probably asking questions. What is going on in my city? I've got all these priests running around believing in this Messiah guy. I've got a couple that don't. I've got a couple that do. What's going on? I need some answers. And the disciple of Jesus says, I shall provide you as answers, sir. Here is the here is the truth. This is why many of your priests believe. Hebrews 3 talks about house. It talks about Moses being, I think, if I can remember correctly, a servant in God's house, in all of God's house. Is that what it says? I can't remember now. <laughs> it's so funny. But I know it okay. talks about Moses. It talks about Jesus. So so one is the builder of the house. One is a servant of the house. M- Moses has a very interesting job description. He plays high priest for about a week when they're building, constructing the tabernacle, the Mishkan, the dwelling place of the Lord. Then Moses does all the initial actions for about a week. Then he anoints Aaron and then Aaron takes over. And so Moses plays high priest for this this brief mm-hmm. moment. So it sets up this pattern of this special high priest who can go into the Holy of Holies and do things for us. What's very interesting for, for, for us here in Israel, we've been studying the book of Leviticus, best book of the Bible in my opinion. And we've, we discovered that when the high priest went into the tabernacle, no one knew what he was doing. No one could see him. Like if you're actually an Israelite and you're camped on the edges of the camp, you have no idea what your high priest is doing. Your high priest goes in and he does things on your behalf for you. He offers sacrifices for you. He make, offers incense for you. He prays for you. He gets the scapegoat and prays and, and for you and you never see it. And the book of Hebrews reflects that exact same theology. Our high priest is in heaven. I don't see it. He's interceding for me. I never hear a word that he says. He's doing things for me and taking away my sins. Never saw that, but it's all happening without me even knowing. It's a, the, the connections are, are, they're undeniable. I agree. Now, I love Hebrews. I love the bulk of Hebrews. Also, talk to us a little bit about the Pharisees because they get a bad rap a lot. We tend to look at them as they were just argument starters. That's what they enjoyed most. But there's more to it than just that. Yeah. So at the time of Jesus, there's no such thing as a rabbi. It's just beginning. Okay. So the, the, the actual generation of Jesus are the first rabbis. You've heard of, a, you've heard of Hillel and Shammai? Mm-hmm. Yep. They're not called rabbi ever because it does, they're not rabbis. It's the generation of Jesus that, that create this thing called rabbis. When you go to synagogues, there's no rabbis. The synagogues are run by elders. When Paul is traveling around in Acts, he never meets a rabbi. So what you do encounter, the major group, are these things called the Pharisees, the, the Prushim, which literally means the interpreters. These are a group of people who have um, got the Torah, and they're trying to interpret it, and they're trying to figure out what does God mean, when he, what does he say, when we, when, uh, that we've got to do these things. How do we do them? And they're debating, they're discussing. There's lots of dialogue between them going on. There are some fascinating debates between themselves. And there's lots of different types. They're not a homogenous group. 
the Pharisees in the north are not the same as the Pharisees in the south. The Pharisees in the temple, uh, which, which often are the ones that challenge Jesus and want to try and kill him, have actually married themselves to the Sadducees. And they've created this thing called the Sanhedrin, the Sanhedrin, which is a, a group of half Sadducee, half Pharisee, and they dominate the temple. But when you're in the north, in the Galilee, you've got itinerant preachers, well-liked. They challenge the authorities. Everyone loves a guy, a rebel, right? rebels without a cause. Jesus is very much, while he himself is not a Pharisee, he's very much in the Pharisaical movement. He's de- debating with them. He's talking to them. And in fact, in the Gospel of Luke, they defend him. They tell him, don't go to Jerusalem because Herod wants to kill you. Right? The northern Pharisees don't want Jesus to leave them. They want to keep him. Many of the Pharisees actually join his movement. And we, we know most of their names, right? You know, Zacchaeus and Joseph of Arimathea and these other guys. Um, Jesus is eating in Pharisaical houses. If they're so bad and so horrible, what's he doing hanging out with them? So it's when he gets to Jerusalem that he's got a problem with it. And he's like, your Torah is terrible. You're doing everything you shouldn't be doing. In fact, he even challenges his, his own listeners. Do what they say. Just don't do what they do. Because right? what they're doing, what they're saying is good. What they're doing is bad. We've got to try and think that the Bible puts these Pharisees up as the straw man to have a little attack at, and we forget the world that they're in and the dialogue that they're in. It's fascinating dialogue. And even the way Jesus teaches, I mean, he teaches like the rest of the Jewish community does, like the Pharisees and and the people of his time, and, and that's in asking questions, answering with questions, Even that arguing back and forth is a very common Jewish way of communicating and debating and dialoguing. The two big ways that we would discuss Bible in in antiquity in Israel is questions and answers and parables. So Jesus was asked 186 questions in the Bible, in the New Testament. He answered three of them. So either he's incredibly rude and hasn't listened to mum, or he's actually, we discover that he actually responds with a question with a question. And it's within that dialogue that you actually begin to teach. Uh, And the other thing he teaches, so with questions, he also teaches by parables. Parables are incredibly unique. You only find parables in the Gospels and in rabbinic literature. The Gospel uh, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, there are no parables in John. There's no parables in Paul. There's no parables in Revelation. There's no parables in the early church fathers. And there's no parables in any Jewish literature outside of Israel. They only exist in Israel. A guy called Steve Notley got all the parables together and put them in a book. He went through all the rabbinic literature. He found them all, put them all together. There's 436. And he discovered something unique. They're all in Hebrew. There's not one parable in Greek and there's not one parable in Aramaic. So while the rest of the surrounding text might be Aramaic, as soon as you start a, a, a parable, you switch to Hebrew. Another thing we might notice, so here we've got a unique teaching device used by Jesus at the right time, done in Hebrew. Parables are not said in synagogues. They're always said in the marketplace. They're always said for the people. You never quote the Torah. No parables ever quote the Bible. And there's no ethnicity in them. They're universal. It's always a man went out to sow a field, not a Jewish man, not a Jewish field. A king went to a foreign country. It's not a Jewish king. It's not the land of Israel. It's the parables, even though they're in Hebrew, even though they're, they're right here in the land, 
they have this universal application, which is exactly the theme of the kingdom of heaven. God is a king, absolutely. He rules and reigns, totally. He loves the earth, absolutely. But there's a special spot on the planet that he's got his eye on, and that's Jerusalem and his land. Wow, that's cool. So what parable do we often maybe misinterpret the most? Uh, Well, I'd say let's just start with two. First of all, the parable of the Good Samaritan is not a parable. Okay. In your Bibles, it'll have the heading, Parable of the Good Samaritan. But we all forget that the actual manuscripts that came out of the earth in, in archaeology, they didn't have titles, they didn't have chapters, they didn't have verses. Nowhere in the text does it say Jesus tells you a parable. Jesus tells them a story. Most likely, the story of the Good Samaritan is real. It actually probably happened and everybody knew about it. And he uses that as a discussion to say, um, uh, when, when asked the question, who is my neighbor? Jesus says, you know, it's a good question. And I need to tell you who it is. Let me tell you a story, which you already know, and you've, but you seem to have forgotten. So here you go. So that's one thing. That the story of the Good Samaritan is fantastic, but it's not, not actually a parable. The other one is um, you end up in Luke, uh, you have three parables, you know, the parable of a lost sheep, parable of a lost coin, parable of uh, two sons. And that's the headings, the parable of the parable of parable. But the actual gospel says Jesus tells them this parable, and it's all one parable. It's not three parables. It's one parable. And what the parable is teaching is that you can be lost far away. You can be 99 people, one lost sheep, or you can be lost at home where there's a woman who's lost her coin. You can be lost far, you can be lost close, and you can be lost in family you know, this, where you're lost. But in each of these cases, you can be found. And the, the parable is actually very well, very clever of Jesus. He, he, he describes people who are far off and we think, okay, we've got to go out and you know, be missionaries overseas. That's true. We should be missionaries at home. We should be missionaries with our own family. So so close to our own family, you'd be looking at our kids as well. It's a great, great, great parable. That's great because I didn't know that. I had never heard it told that way. I've always heard it in described as in percentage. You know, you have the lost coins. You kind of like the one in 100, the, I think the other one's one in 50 and the other one's half or whatever. I forget. Those are the same thing, but, but those kind of um, different takes on it, but boy, that makes a whole lot of sense. That makes a whole lot more sense. And it's easier to relate to because I think that it's so easy for us to feel lost in a crowd and to be lost in a crowd. And, and even if you look at these huge churches you know, where maybe there's like a thousand people, you know, you can go and be totally lost in a size, a crowd that size and never have any accountability unless you choose to. But you can also be lost in a small church or in a, in a family. I mean, we have to be found, you know, and we have to seek God. And I, I often pray that for my own children, that they will Seek God with their whole heart, just as Jeremiah says, because he promises that we will find him when we seek him. And that's such um, a wonderful promise. And and I think that's what we're you're really just getting to that these promises that we find in Scripture and how much more sense they make when we understand the culture in which Jesus spoke and his audience 
and how then we can take that and relate it to ourselves. And it makes him more relatable and it makes the scriptures more relatable instead of being a book of of rules and do's and don'ts and look what's going to happen to you if you mess up because that's not the message of Jesus. It's not the message of the Bible. Right. I was having a discussion just last night and someone quoted to me, they said, without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. And I said, yes, that's true. That is also there. There's also other texts as well, but, but let's start with that one. If there's no remission of sin without the shedding of blood, how come Daniel he wants to continue to pray? He's got no temple. He has absolutely no way to make a sacrifice. So therefore, he's got no hope to get rid of his sin. And angels show up and they give him visions and dreams. They tell him all about the future and he writes it all down. But none of the angels say, Daniel, uh, we're giving you a vision of the future. Please write it down. But by the way, when you die, you're toast. Okay, you've got no hope. You're, you're doomed to hell. Doesn't think that at all. And uh, it means that we've probably missed some of what the Torah is actually sharing. And that's Deuteronomy 4 as well. When you seek me with all your heart, as Deuteronomy 4 says, you will find me. That's the promise that Moses is saying. When you, and, and Jesus says exactly the same thing because obviously he's also reading the same text. He's not misquoting it. He's actually showing us the, the right interpretation. He says, um, if you look for God, you're lost. But if you look for God, you'll get found. Good words. Very good words. Thank you so much for your time today. And I don't want to keep you any longer. I think we could have this conversation for another hour. I appreciate all your words of wisdom and your teaching today. My pleasure. Thanks very much. Well, and I wanted to just mention that you are also part of CMJ, which is the church's ministry among the Jewish people. And that is in Canada. A branch started it. It started in London in 1809 traveled all over the world wherever there were Jewish people and it now has branches in Canada, America, Hong Kong, China, Australia, South Africa, Singapore, France, England, Scotland and Ireland and of course Israel where I live. I had no idea it was that big so that's really cool and our audience can look up CMJ Israel and they can find that site where they'll find maybe even some articles or some teaching from you. You can find, if you put in your name, so it's Aaron, then it's E-I-M-E, I-M-E, and you can find videos and everything else on YouTube of your teaching. And I think that they will enjoy hearing more from you. Thanks very much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Grafted Jewish Roots of Christianity. If you've enjoyed this podcast, Please make sure to subscribe, leave a review, and recommend it to your friends and family, and to check out my Bible study, Jewels of Hebrews. That's all for today. See you next time.